0: Revelation 19 tonight, to me, one of the great chapters in the Bible. It divides very nicely into two parts. The first 10 verses, what I like to call the Hallelujah Chorus of Heaven, or Heaven's Hallelujahs. These 10 verses were the inspiration of a man named George Frederick Handel, who wrote a very familiar song you and I know as the Hallelujah Chorus. And then verses 11 through the rest of the chapter describe the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory. Let me remind all of us that the first time Jesus came, he came in grace. The second time Jesus Christ comes, he comes in glory. He comes in glory. But I want to first talk for a few moments about heaven's hallelujahs, the first 10 verses of Revelation 19. Again, the word hallelujah is used four times in the first six verses. It is the only time this word hallelujah is used in the entire Bible. Only time you'll find it is in this passage of Scripture in Revelation. The word hallelujah means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. And that's exactly what they're doing. In fact, if anybody doubts that the book of Revelation is not only the revelation of Jesus Christ unveiling him before our eyes, but that it is also a book of worship, you have to look no further than the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 to know that this book is all about worship. In fact, if you go over to chapter 19, verse 10, towards the end, just very quickly, you'll notice two words there towards the end of that verse. Worship God. That's what life is all about. That's what eternity will be all about, worshiping God. And that's what they're doing in heaven. That's what they're doing here. That's what they're already doing there. That's what we were doing and what we should continue to do and make a lifestyle in our life. After these things, John says, 19.1, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Again, their worship is not quiet or reserved. It is loud and enthusiastic. And they're praising the Lord for several things. First of all, three things here in verse 1. Salvation, glory, and power. We should always be praising the Lord for his wondrous and gracious salvation. Salvation that has been given to us through the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a salvation that is a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. We should never lose the wonder of our salvation. We should never lose the wonder that our names are written in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. We should never get over that we are saved Remember again the story of the Gospels when the disciples came back and they were all excited that they were able to cast out demons and heal people, and Jesus said, that's good, but it's greater to rejoice that your names are found written in heaven. Salvation. We should get up every day and say, thank you, God, that I am saved. And then they also are praising the Lord for his glory. A glory, let me remind all of us tonight, that He shares with us. A glory, just like His salvation, that He doesn't keep to Himself, but He shares His glory with us. You say, How does He do that? because the presence of God is living within each of us, even in these fragile and frail and finite human bodies. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore the glory of God resides in us. And we can praise God that he not only shares his salvation with us, we can praise the Lord that he shares his glory with us, and then his power And we know the Bible teaches us that he shares his power with us as well. Paul reminds the Ephesians that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in each of us. Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through this great unlimited power power that resides in me. We have the power of God living within us through, again, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we can praise God every day for our salvation, for the glory that he shares with us, and for the power that he shares with us. Verse 2, they also are praising the Lord because he has judged the great prostitute. He has brought the capital city, Babylon, of the kingdom of the Antichrist down, and he is beginning to bring the entire kingdom of the Antichrist down, the final world empire, before Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. And notice he is also being praised not just for judging the great prostitute, verse 2, but also for avenging the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. Five things in the first two verses that heaven is singing hallelujah about. Then, verse 3, a second time, the crowd shouted, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. The smoke rises from her forever and ever. And here again, they are praising the Lord for bringing down the kingdom of the Antichrist. The 24 elders and the four living creatures that we've talked about throughout our study of Revelation, in a sense, the worship leaders of heaven threw themselves to the ground and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, which simply means we affirm or we agree, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I think there's going to be a lot of praising the Lord when we get that glory, and we're going to be a part of that. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and all you who fear him, both the small and the great. The word praise means singing to honor God. We've just done that. That's part of worship, singing to bring honor to God. And notice that the worship of God, both in heaven and here, is to be all-inclusive. Notice, everybody's to be participating. You know, as much as we have grown in our worship at the Oasis, we're still not there yet. We still got growth to do in our worship. And one of the areas I see is we still haven't gotten everybody to buy in to being a participant in worship. We've still got people sometimes on Sunday who are hanging out there while we're in here worshiping. We need to get them in here. We need to help them to understand in an encouraging way what we're doing in here is absolutely essential and vital. It's just as important as the ministry of the Word, and they go together together. And therefore, don't be excluded. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant, because one day, if you're a true Christian and you get to heaven, there won't be any lobbies to hang out in and just, you know, hang out there while the rest of us are worshiping. Everybody's going to be lifting up their voice. And I also love this. Notice there's also no discrimination or segregation in the worship of God. It's all the servants. It's small. It's great. It's every last person who will be in heaven. It's all the angels, the myriads and myriads of angels in heaven. It's all the saints of all time, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, all the people that we know, including ourselves. One day we will stand in a privileged position before the throne of God, and we will be able to say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But they're not just praising the Lord here for those things. They're also looking ahead to the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters. Again, I couldn't help but think of Niagara Falls if you've ever been there. That's a sound unlike any sound I've ever heard that water makes. And like loud crashes of thunder... And they were shouting, again, worship in heaven, not quiet and reserved, loud and enthusiastic. For the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns, the one who holds all things in his control. That's what the word all-powerful means. My favorite, one of my favorite Greek words, the pantocrator, is what the word is in Greek, the pantocrator, the all-powerful, the one who holds all things in the universe that he created in his hands, including you and me and this church and all those we love and every situation and circumstance that you're going through. He holds it all in his very capable hands. Let us rejoice, verse 7, and give him glory. Because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know why they're praising the Lord? Because the bride and the bridegroom are no longer separated. We're now together. That's why they're celebrating. We finally get to be with our bridegroom, Jesus. We finally get to see him face to face. We finally get to occupy the same space that he does in heaven. That's why they're praising the Lord. That's why they're exalting. That's why they're giving him glory. They're so happy that finally the bride and the bridegroom are together. I do want you to notice that last phrase of verse 7, though. That's our responsibility. As the bride of Christ, it's our responsibility to make sure that we are ready to meet our bridegroom. The bride has made herself ready. She is permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Those things that we've done for the Lord here on earth, those faithful acts of service, and worship, and all of that. That's going to dress us that day for the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Then the angel, verse 9, said to me, Write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. He also said to me, These are the true words of God. We're going to come back to that concept, but it's the idea that God's word can be counted on. So I threw myself down at his feet to worship him, John said, but he said, don't do this. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony about Jesus. Notice that even the angels reject being worshiped. Only God is to be worshiped. That's why you know the difference. I've said this before in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord, the pre Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You know the difference between an angel of the Lord, any angel, and the angel of the Lord, because if it's just an angel and some human being starts to worship them, they do exactly the same thing. Don't, oh, no, no, don't worship me. I'm just an angel. But when it's the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ of the Old Testament... He permits worship. And that's exactly what's happening here. But I want to, again, draw your attention to those two very important words. Worship God. That's what life's all about, folks. That's what eternity is all about. It's having a heart of worship for God. It's adoring him. It's, it's wanting to bless him. It, it, it's, it's wanting to pour my life out to him. It's wanting to love on him. It's all about worshiping God, and the very center of it is Jesus. That's why he says, the angel to John, the testimony about Jesus, that's the spirit of prophecy not knowing all the details about the Antichrist and his kingdom and the mark of the beast and all those things that we can get wrapped up on and in in a book like Revelation. Listen, it's important to have a knowledge of those things or else God would not have revealed them. But they are never to be the focus. The focus is always to be God. It's always to be Jesus Christ. We need to keep our eyes always on him. Worship him. Worship him. And make sure that we're not allowing idols, anything or anyone, to come before the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's out of these heaven's hallelujahs that then God begins to reveal some of the details about the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me remind all of us tonight that in his cross and resurrection, Christ won a great victory over the powers of evil, but in his second coming, he will execute that victory. John's vision of the second coming of Christ focuses primarily on one major aspect of his return, and that is his complete and total victory over all the powers of evil. That's the thing that captured John's attention from this revelation of God. Jesus Christ will destroy all the powers of evil in order to set up his kingdom on earth. So let's look at this wonderful passage tonight. And the Three things I want us to see tonight out of this second part of Revelation 19 is this. His appearance is glorious. His armies who come with him are glorious. And his authority is glorious. Let's first look at his appearance, the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and here came a white horse, A horse of victory, a horse uh, of purity, and the one riding on it was called, first of all, faithful. Oh, we sung about that tonight. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ is faithful? He's trustworthy absolutely trustworthy, he's reliable, he's dependable. I don't know what you're dealing with in your life right now. I don't know what you're going through, but I know this about the glory of my Lord Jesus Christ and his appearance. He is a faithful God. You can totally rely upon him. You can totally rest all of your weight on him because he is faithful. Next, John says he's true He's authentic. He's the real deal. He's genuine. He's absolutely consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unlike us as human beings that from one day to the other that we change and you never know what you're going to get or what you're going to receive from us, you always know what you're going to get with Jesus Christ. He never changes. Absolutely consistent absolutely true from the inside out. And with justice, he judges and goes to war. He's not only faithful, he's not only true, he's a warrior, a warrior who can deliver, as Zephaniah said, a warrior who can fight our battles and will fight our battles for us. I want to remind you of that tonight. Some of you may be in a battle right now, a struggle, a conflict. Know that he is the great warrior. And just like he did with the shepherd boy David or with anyone else who goes out to to stand before the enemy or whatever challenge or obstacle is in the way, he'll fight your battle for you because the battle's the Lord's. He's the great warrior. The great warrior. His eyes... Verse 12, are like a fiery flame. This speaks about the the penetrating insight and, and judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees into every situation. He knows every detail about, every circumstance. There is nothing withheld from his eyes and from his knowledge and from his understanding. And here's, to me, just an amazing thing about our Jesus. He sees us. He sees everything about us. He sees things about us that we don't even know or see ourselves. And yet, you know what? Even though he knows everything and sees everything, he loves us with an unconditional, everlasting love. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And then, there are many diadem crowns on his head. Some of you may remember the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, The Lamb Upon His Throne. This is the phrase where the author of that hymn was inspired to write that hymn. Why does the Bible reference him as wearing many crowns? Because all the world leaders from day one, have been usurpers to the rule of earth. No one has ever been able to rule the world in righteousness. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And therefore, the many diadem crowns speak of his absolute sovereignty over this earth and the universe that he created, and that he has the right to be the one to rule and to reign. All others wore a false crown. He not only wears the true crown, he wears multiple crowns. And then the Bible says this, he has a name written that no one knows except himself. Why would God then reveal it if you and I cannot know it, because it, again, is a reminder of the glory of our God, because the human mind cannot grasp the depth of his being. There are always going to be things about Jesus that we don't know and cannot know, because he's God, and we're not. Even in our glorified form, even in heaven, there will be mysteries to the Godhead, because he's an infinite being and we're not. And it's just a reminder again about, my goodness, this is our God. His appearance is glorious. Again, in his first coming, he came in grace. He came as a baby. He came in Bethlehem. He didn't come to judge at all. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to offer salvation and invite people to be part of his kingdom. But in his second coming, he comes in glory. He comes in glory. And his glory will be undiminished, it will be undiluted. He is dressed, verse 13, in clothing dipped in blood. Could this be his own blood that he shed? Could this be the blood of the saints that he's avenging? Could this be the blood of the enemies of God that are going to be slain on that day? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible isn't specific. It could be one or two or all three, but his clothing will be definitely dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God because there's never been a more perfect communication and revelation of God than Jesus Christ himself. The writer of Hebrews says in the book of Hebrews that God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God. Jesus even said to his disciples when they said, Show us the Father. He said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Because I am the perfect and ultimate expression and communication of God. I am the Word of God. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. His appearance is glorious. But do you know what? The armies of heaven that accompany him to earth the second time he comes is glorious too. And do you know that this is another verse that you and I are in? We're in this verse. We will be part of the armies of heaven that accompany Jesus back to earth. Remember, we were raptured before the tribulation, Then there's the seven-year tribulation, and at the end of the seven-year tribulation is when I believe Jesus comes the second time. So we'll have been in heaven for at least seven years, and now us and the angelic host are all going to come back. Not that Jesus needs us to fight his battles for him. We are simply privileged spectators, the victory that Jesus Christ is going to have over the nations of this world who continue to rebel against him and the evil and wickedness of this world. So notice verse 14, and put yourself right in this scene. The armies that are in heaven, that's you, my friend. That's me. That's every saint of God dressed in white, clean, and fine linen. We're following him on white horses. I want you to note something, too. Notice that even in heaven and even throughout eternity, we're still going to be following him. He's always in the lead. We always follow him. That's to be our position now and forever. He's our leader. We follow. And then notice... His authority is glorious. From his mouth extends a sharp sword, the word of God that comes out of his mouth, so that with it he can strike the nations. He can deliver a fatal blow to the nations of this world and bring them down so that they submit to his authority once and for all. Now, they're not going to go down without a fight, so to speak. If you read Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is all about the nations raging because they don't want to give up their positions of power and authority on this earth. But one day, they're going to have to give it up no matter what because Jesus Christ is coming to take over one day and to rule on the throne of his ancestor David a kingdom and a throne that was promised to David even in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 14. God says through the prophet Samuel to David that from your throne that you will begin, it will be an everlasting throne and it will go on forever and ever. Well, David's not going to sit on that throne. Jesus sits on that throne. He will rule them with an iron Ra, meaning that once he sets up his kingdom on earth, this is how Jesus will rule. By the way, the word rule in the original language is the word shepherd. Poimen. Same word that's used for pastors, shepherds. Interesting, isn't it? He's going to shepherd the nations. Now, he's going to shepherd the nations with a staff, Shepherd staff, but a shepherd staff of iron. So you see this again, picture of Jesus, sort of in perfect balance. You have our loving shepherd who's always going to be who he is, because he's true. He's always going to be, at heart, a shepherd, one who's nurturing, one who's caring, one who's looking out, But make no mistake about it, during the millennial kingdom, that staff will be of iron. And what he says, it will be law. It will go. And if those folks in the millennial kingdom who come in in unglorified bodies, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, if they don't want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the consequences for it even during the millennial reign of christ an example of that is in the prophet isaiah where isaiah is given this information that during the millennial kingdom if there are those in the middle east certain countries are actually named there by name if they don't want to come up to jerusalem and worship me then it won't rain and they'll experience drought even during the millennial reign god will withhold his blessing from those who choose not to obey him. He will rule, shepherd, but he will do so with an iron shepherd staff. He will also stomp the winepress of the furious wrath of God. Again, that word, pantocrator, the all-powerful, the one who holds all things in his control. He will crush his enemies under his That's the picture here in verse 15. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. His authority is unparalleled. He has no equal. He has no rival. And then I want you to see this as we wrap it up tonight. John says, Then I saw one angel standing in the sun. He shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky, come gather around for the great banquet of God to each are filled the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses and those who ride them and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. Now remember, this is part of the passage where I said, His authority is glorious. I want you to note, very importantly, what happens next. Now the beast was seized, and along with him, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur, and the others were killed by the sword. You know what's significant here? Do you note something? Beginning in verse 19, you have this vast army on earth that's assembling to do battle with Jesus, and yet the text doesn't tell us any details about the battle. Why? Because so swift and so complete is the defeat of evil by Jesus that the text doesn't even describe the battle. It simply notes the results of the battle. That's how quick it is. Jesus simply speaks the word and it's done. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, by the very breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ, all his enemies are gone. The very breath of Jesus puts down all rebellion once and for all, all evil, all wickedness. That's the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why, to me, Revelation 19 is one of the grandest and greatest chapters in all the Word of God. But in closing, I want to come back to a few things here tonight. I want you to go back with me to those verses, verses 11 and 12. The Bible says that Jesus has many diadem crowns. But you know what? Here's something fantastic to think about. That Jesus... Who's going to rule the earth one day for a thousand years and then rule throughout eternity shares that rule of his kingdom with you and I. We get to rule and reign with Christ. Unbelievable. That's our God. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, but he shares his kingdom and the glory of his kingdom, and the greatness of his kingdom with us, and allows us not only to be a part of it, but to rule alongside of him. The one who has eyes like a fiery flame, let me remind all of us, yes, Jesus has seen everything we've ever done and will do. Nothing can escape his gaze. But when Jesus looks at you, and me even in all of our imperfection he looks at us with eyes of love and one day you and i are going to have the privilege and honor of standing and looking in to those eyes one day we're going to be this close to this jesus the lord of glory and we're going to see into those very eyes of love that look at us every day. And I want you to know about those eyes of love. I want you to know that he is true, that he is real in a world of such cosmetic facade and fakeness and unreality and who can you believe in and who can you trust and who's the real deal, and all of that, Jesus will always be true to you. He will never leave you or abandon you. He will never turn his back on you. He will be just who he's always been and always will be. And one final thing before we part tonight. He's faithful. faithful. You can rest all of your weight on him, and he'll have you. He'll never drop you. He'll never lose anything that you entrust to him. In fact, one of the things we're going to see on Sunday is where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know the one in whom I believed, and I know that he is able to keep that that I've entrusted to him until that day. Maybe you're carrying around something right now, and you just need to give it to Jesus. He can handle it. He's faithful. You can depend upon him. You can rely upon him. That's why the Bible says, day after day, he's faithful in carrying our burdens. That's why the Bible encourages to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so whatever you have brought here tonight, whatever you are dealing with at home that that is weighing on you and, and weighing you down, know that God is faithful. And you can take that burden, you can take that care, and you can take that weight, and you can throw it all completely on Jesus. That's how faithful Jesus is. If you and I take nothing out of Revelation 19, take these few things and remember how glorious the one who's coming for us one day is and that one day we're going to see him face to face and when we see him, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that one day... We will not only have the privilege and honor of worshiping you here on earth, but, Lord, one day this separation between us will be over. One day you, the bridegroom, is going to come and get your bride, and we're going to be with you forever, never separated again. We're going to be really in your presence. We're going to see you like we've never seen you. We're going to hear you like we've never heard you. We're going to experience you like we've never experienced or engaged with you, God. But until that day comes for us, God, you also make it very special for us to engage and experience you right here and now, even though we're physically separated from you, because you placed your Holy Spirit within each of us. And there's a communion and a fellowship and a a a communication Lord, that can happen, Lord, on a level that we can't even fully appreciate or understand, God. But we know it exists. We sense your presence here in this auditorium. We sense your presence in our home. We sense your presence in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. And we know, God, that you're with us. And we know that you see what we're dealing with and what we're struggling with and what our cares are and what our deepest needs are, God. We know you do and that you're right there with us in everything and through everything, God. You love us so much, and you will always be that faithful and true God that never stops loving us and can't love us any more than you ever have or any less than you ever have. And one day, God, not only will you take us through all of our trials and tribulations of earth, but you will open up the glories of heaven to us and allow us to rule and reign with you forever and ever. Oh, Jesus, all we can say is thank you, God. We praise you tonight for being who you are, for loving us more than we could ever express or imagine, and we just say, God, praise the Lord. These things we say, In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you next week.